World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When the spire of the Notre Dame Cathedral went up in flames five years ago, Parisians gasped and wept, and money poured in for its reconstruction. Our correspondent visits the site, which is, astonishingly, on track to reopen this year. And it's kind of intuitive that some languages simply sound nicer than others. But when our correspondent dug into a new survey that used a range of languages, he found a surprising lack of variation in how lovely respondents rated them. But first... go about improving the lives of the world's poorest. Aid and development agencies have tried a host of things, and some have worked better than others. But new technologies, too, have made quite the difference. Take mobile phones. Devices that were once only found in richer nations are now available almost everywhere, and they've changed lives for the better. The four billion people who live in low- or lower-middle-income countries have vastly more access to information, chat to far-off friends, and they use their phones like bank cards. Now, artificial intelligence, a similarly earth-shifting technology, could bring about even more development opportunities. It's impossible to know for sure what impact AI will have on developing countries, but the central fact about it is that it's making it easier for people to get hold of information and use it. Robert Guest is a deputy editor at The Economist. It's such powerful technology that it's very likely that it's going to eliminate some medium and even high-skilled jobs, but it's also going to create new jobs and it's likely to raise productivity. So overall, it seems likely that it's going to make countries richer all around the world, and that includes the developing world. Robert, what do we know so far about the rollout of AI in the developing world? Well, it's very, very early days. The most powerful models are only slightly more than a year old. Possibly the biggest area where AI might help is in boosting the levels of human capital. There's a possibility for it significantly improving both education and healthcare in the developing world. Robert, let's start with education. How might AI change this in poorer places? Well, so your starting point is that education systems in much of the developing world are much less good than one would like. So there was one report that found that a a typical pupil in sub-Saharan Africa spends about six years in school, but only retains three years worth of learning. 
Now, there's a huge difference between that and a rich country like Japan, where you'll have students spending 14 years in classes and absorbing 16 years' worth of education. The promise here is that chatbots might be able to provide individual instruction to pupils and make up for the fact that they have very few teachers and those teachers are not terribly well qualified. When I went to Kenya, I met Tony Ndungu, an entrepreneur who is trying to come up with an educational chatbot that will help students. For children in need of a personal tutor and don't understand, for example, either how to do their homework or understand a concept, it guides them as a tutor would guide a student using both audio and text on how to go through the learning process of a particular concept or idea in both English and Kiswahili. If they have a math problem they don't know how to do, it can help the child go through step-by-step step solving the problem and even give them an example they can be able to repeat to see if they understood the question. So the basic AI model is typically developed in a rich country, but then can be adapted quite cheaply to local circumstances and local cultural contexts. So, for example, you might in the West say that A is for Apple. Tony pointed out that he didn't see an apple until he was 30 years old. So on his app, A is for animal. The app can also observe children's learning strategies, what works for them and what doesn't, and then tweak the way it interacts with them to get better results. And they also have an app for teachers just to help them with the workload, with lesson planning, tracking attendance, and with figuring out which pupils are absorbing the material and which ones aren't. Okay, so that's education, but tell us a little bit about healthcare. How might AI improve things there? So using AI in healthcare is much riskier than using it in education. You know, if a, an educational chatbot misfires, the pupil might flunk a test, whereas if a medical one hallucinates, a patient could die. It's an area where both the providers and the regulators have to be more careful. Nonetheless, some AI-powered medical kits already pretty widely used. So, for example, you have handheld ultrasound devices which can actually interpret the images that they spit out. And that's very useful because often the sticking point in these things is not the availability of the devices, which are not that expensive, but the availability of people qualified to interpret the scans. So again, you look at a place like Kenya, it only has one doctor for every four and a half thousand people, which is not nearly enough. I met there with Dr. Daphne Ungunjiri, who's the head of Access Afia, a Kenyan firm that runs Mdactaria, a virtual healthcare platform with about 30,000 clients. So you're going to ask the question into a text field on your phone. A AI-powered chatbot will look at the context of your question and provide a response. The clinician will verify this response, add to it, improve it, and that response is sent back to the user. You're a pregnant woman, say, and you have noticed you have some new abdominal pain that you didn't have at your last clinic visit and you'd like to know whether this is something that you should take care of urgently. You can ask the question on Mdaktari and you get prompt to evaluate other symptoms that you might have based on the information that you've been given. But as you say, using AI in the medical space comes with risks. Is it possible that these risks could outweigh the benefits of using this technology? It's possible. I mean, these tools are not ready yet. But you've got to remember that the status quo is pretty dire. 
because your starting point is that the failures there are causing more than 8 million deaths a year by one estimate. So these tools, they don't have to be perfect to be an improvement on the status quo, and they're getting better all the time. Now, what about some of the obstacles to implementation here? So I'm thinking about languages, maybe. I mean, how well can these AI tools speak Yoruba, for example? Uh, Languages is a really interesting area because it it seems that you can teach these AIs to speak new languages relatively cheaply. That seems to be not the biggest obstacle. Connectivity is a much bigger obstacle, although the pace at which uh, mobile phones and internet access have spread around the world is incredibly fast. There's still quite large portions of the world where people are not logging on. And although you can free ride somewhat by sort of wandering into a mall and borrowing their Wi-Fi for free, connectivity is a big problem and that's going to need to be addressed. Now, critics might say that there have been all sorts of advancements in the rich world that have promised to bring benefits to the developing world but haven't actually materialised. Robert, tell me why these are different. I think AI is going to be different for a couple of reasons. Once the initial work has been done on creating the models in rich countries, the process of adapting them can be done more cheaply, particularly with open source models. And people don't need new devices. The actual software can be distributed through their smartphones. So I'm pretty optimistic about this. They're going to have to get the regulation right. There's a significant problem in developing countries that privacy regulation is not particularly good. There's a danger that artificial intelligence in less mature polities is more likely to cause conflict and polarization, and you'll see deep fakes everywhere. But the potential to improve human capital in areas where it's now lacking is such a big prize that I suspect that quite a lot of this is going to happen. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Ore, thank you so much. This bigger question of how generative AI could help poorer countries develop was one of many topics discussed on yesterday's Babbage podcast, our Science and Tech show, in which Zanny Minton Beddoes, our editor-in-chief, interviews Sam Altman and Satya Nadella, the bosses of OpenAI and Microsoft. They tell Zanny what's next for generative AI and how they would respond to the many risks it poses. It's out now wherever you listen to our podcasts. And we've even dropped the paywall. Yeah, you're welcome. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Five years ago, smoke and flame started to emerge from the roof of Notre Dame, and it was just one of those shocking moments. Sophie Pedder is The Economist's Paris bureau chief. People were gathering, flocking to Notre Dame to see what was just the most devastating moment. And then the spire toppled, and there were gasps as people watched this happen. Oh, la, la. 
Notre Dame is so much a sort of emblem for France, for Paris. It's a monument that has a worldwide resonance, not just for the Catholic Church or Catholics around the world, but for everyone who sees it as this Gothic masterpiece that has survived all these centuries, and there it was, burning. Almost immediately, Emmanuel Macron, who was himself in the Elysee Palace just over the river, cancelled all his plans, went straight down to watch the firefighters doing what they could to try and control the flames. And in front of the cameras, he made a pledge, which at the time seemed absolutely crazy, and that was to rebuild Notre Dame Cathedral in five years. Et nous rebâtirons. Nous rebâtirons Notre Dame. Parce que c'est ce que les Français attendent. Parce que c'est ce que notre histoire mérite. And the astonishing thing is this incredibly complicated, ambitious project is on track for the doors to be open for the first mass on December the 8th, 2024. That's the end of this year. On an icy morning in January, I was given rare access to the reconstruction site itself. I've just come out of the metro in the centre of Paris. It's the most beautiful, snowy morning. Sun is beginning to rise shortly. We're just before dawn. And I can see in front of me Notre Dame Cathedral with the lights on in the scaffolding that is currently surrounding the spire above the roof that's just been finished as part of the reconstruction project. It's quite the most magical site. So the building site is a very cramped location. I mean, it's really quite amazing that they have created this village. There are 500 people currently working there. I was given a package for protective clothing, obviously the hard hats, the Wellington boots, and began the climb up the scaffolding to the various points of the project because you have carpenters working at a certain level, you have roofers working at another. There are stonemasons at various points as well. There is all these sort of different elements to this extraordinary site, which is essentially covered in scaffolding. We've just reached the top of the spire. It's 96 metres above ground, I think, and it's bitterly cold and utterly beautiful. The uh, cock, which has been painted in gold, is ready to be unveiled when the scaffolding comes down. It's quite a dizzying sensation being right up here. Uh, you don't want to have vertigo climbing up the scaffolding at this height, but it's an extraordinary project and uh, the welding is continuing. The builders are all around me still doing the finishing touches. The flames from the fire engulfed the entire wooden structure of the roof. What happened then is at the base of the spire, all these charred embers and burning embers crashed through the hole at the base of the spire and into the cathedral itself. Now, thanks to the extraordinary craftsmanship and engineering prowess, really, of the craftsmen in the 12th and 13th centuries, the vaults beneath the roof and the stone pillars supporting Notre Dame were completely untouched by flames. They were obviously damaged by a lot of dust, the lead particles, but the stonework was intact. 
Also intact, astonishingly, were the stained glass windows. Although there was smoke damage, they had had to be cleaned, as was the great organ. This is an 8,000-tube masterpiece, which has had to be dismantled, thoroughly cleaned, off-site, and then put back pipe by pipe into the cathedrals. Sur, ses, sur son protocole, sur le, le nombre de personnes qui travaillent ici, est, tout est amplifié, tout est plus, plus intense. One of the other arresting features of this project is that they took a decision to not just respect the original designs of the cathedral roof and the spire, but to respect the techniques that were used. Now, what that meant is when they put the contracts out to tender, and there were over 140 of them, they put very high demands on how the different elements would be constructed. So I talked to one of the carpenters. And he was explaining how after the logs were felled in the forests, they were then hewn by hand into timber beams using these specially hand-forged axes that were based on the models used in medieval times. Now, this is something that some carpenters do as a way of sort of respecting the authenticity of wood and the traditional methods, but it's certainly more time-consuming. It's harder work for the carpenters involved, but it produces something that is not a replica of the original roof. It really is just how the roof would have been at the time. After visiting the project, it just has brought home to me quite how ambitious this promise to do it within five years is. The French feel it's pretty much a test for them to show that they can keep to that kind of ambitious deadline. But it's also, in a way, a showcase for them. The Olympic Games are taking place in Paris this summer, and I think that they are very conscious that there will be a global gaze upon the capital at a time when they are hoping that the original silhouette will be there, restored for the whole world to see, and putting both historic monument that is Notre Dame on display, but also the country's craftsmanship. I mean, this has been a, an opportunity for those with these very specialized skills to rebuild something with so much care, so much attention, and such a high level of skill. And that I think the French are very aware of. It's a chance to show off and a moment for a bit of French pride. For linguists, all languages have their expressiveness, their complexities. But to untrained ears, there's only the sort of aural aesthetic. Everyone has a view as to which languages sound nice and which don't. Like many people, I reckon French is pretty easy on the ear. Spanish, too. And don't even get me started about Italian, Dio Buono. But how universal are these views? Does a lot of humanity agree about which languages sound nice, or is it largely in the ear of the beholder? Three scholars have now had a go at answering those questions. 
So in looking at the beauty of languages, it's kind of hard to measure because we have to have lots of data. We have to have lots of audio of these languages. And more than that, you need the same audio. You can't have someone telling a happy story in French and a sad story in German because you might not be comparing apples to apples. Lane Green is our language expert. But these researchers hit on the idea of using an online film about the life of Jesus, which just happened to be recorded in hundreds of languages, and that gave them the opportunity to compare exactly the same text read in these different languages. Okay, so what's the, the nature of the experiment here then? So Andre Anakin and Nikolai Asayev and Nicholas Erben Johansson recruited 820 people as listeners from three different language groups. This is important because we want to control for people's native prejudices. So we had a group of Chinese speakers, a group of English speakers, and a third group they call Semitic, which is primarily speakers of Arabic and Hebrew. And they asked these 820 people to listen to clips of many different languages and rate the attractiveness of the language that they heard. And so what fell out of this grand comparison then? Well, perhaps quite surprisingly, because I think a lot of people have strong intuitions that some languages are very pretty and others are very ugly, nearly all of the 228 languages that were tested were rated quite strikingly similarly to each other and by all three groups of raters. So on a scale of 1 to 100, all were rated between 37 and 43, and of that, nearly all of them between about 39 and 42. The most highly rated was Tok Pisin, which is an English Creole spoken in Papua New Guinea, and the lowest rated was Chechen. And all three language groups broadly agreed on their rankings. But the differences between the best and worst languages were so slight and the variation between individual raters was so great that we really ought to resist the journalistic temptation, natural though it might be, to say that we have found the world's prettiest and ugliest languages with any authority. But what about trying to draw some less definitive conclusions then? Anything that sort of tied together the higher ranking ones or the lower ranking ones? No, and this really surprised the researchers who were really looking for uh, linguistic features rather than trying to crown the world's prettiest language. They were trying to see if languages that had this or that feature, for example, the nasal vowels that are in French, you know, bon vin blanc, or the fricative consonants, the sort of sh and je sounds that you hear of in Polish or Portuguese. They didn't find that the presence of any of these sounds correlated with uh, high ratings or low ratings. The only thing that passed any sort of statistical test for significance was a very slight dislike for tonal languages, which are languages that distinguish, say, ma from ma as two different words. And even though Chinese speakers do that themselves in Chinese, even the Chinese raters gave a very slightly lower rating to such tonal languages that they heard. So is there anything else in the data we can, we can pull out as a, a conclusion from this study? Yes, well, a couple of things did actually emerge from the data. It's not that there was no result. Among other things, there was a strong preference for female voices over male voices. There was a weaker preference for some deeper and what they considered breathier voices. And really strikingly, there's about a 12% boost in attractiveness for a language that a listener rated as familiar. If you said, do you think you know what this language is? And the person answered yes, they would consistently give it a higher rating, even if subsequently asked, what is this language? They got it wrong. So both languages they were familiar with and languages they thought they were familiar with were rated as higher on the scale than those that were rated as unfamiliar. And that, that's interesting. It seems that we like languages that we know that don't sound totally foreign to us. 
And you say this was a sort of first foray into this question. How better to design the experiment next time, do you reckon? There's a couple things that the researchers couldn't test here. One of them is that this was scripted. It could be that you elicit different kinds of behaviors from people when you ask them to sit down and read a script versus ask them to converse. There are other things that are hard to measure, things like the rhythm or not just the sounds that appear in a language, but how they appear together. For example, English strings lots of consonants together is in the word strings itself. That was beyond the scope of this test. And so the researchers are hoping to be able to do more in the future with those things. So despite all those other avenues of study, I guess the striking thing here is that there's just not that much different from the prettiest from the ugliest in a a general sense. Yes, and normally scientists and maybe journalists would be disappointed in a negative result, a study that doesn't purport to show a clear answer to the question that it asks. But the researchers end their article with a kind of uplifting phrase. They say, we have emphasized the fundamental phonetic and aesthetic unity of world languages. And I think we can all agree that there's enough division in the world already. And so sometimes a little unity is a good thing. Lane, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. For comments, feedback, or if you just want to say hi, you can get in touch at podcastseconomist.com. Thank you to everyone who has taken time to email in with notes about the show or to leave us reviews. We read them all and we really, really appreciate them. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.